Nothing coming from the mainstream media these days should surprise us at all. In fact, sometimes it's more disturbing what they're trying to hide from us. But in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, it's more about what they may be trying to make us forget. It wasn't that long ago you couldn't turn on a TV or a radio without seeing the face or hearing the name of Kyle Rittenhouse. Roughly six months ago, his trial ended, a jury of his peers delivered a verdict, and since that time the media has pretty much memory hold the whole idea, the whole trial, the whole aftermath, the whole hysteria. Stay tuned, and today we'll get into some of that hysteria and try to remember what happened and maybe take a look at it from an objective perspective. Welcome to episode two of America More Perfect. It has been a year since the first episode. Uh, that was not on purpose. Uh, if any of you ever start a podcast of your own, you'll find out in a hurry that there is a quick learning curve. Um, long story short, we lost a lot of the video footage from that first episode. Uh, so we did release it as an audio episode that can be found on uh, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, we published a version of it on YouTube. So it's out there. Uh, you can take a look at it. That was an episode I did with a good friend of mine, Brent Ewing. That was a Major League Baseball preview. Uh, we had a good time doing it, but we did learn a lot. Uh, so sometime we'll have Brent back on. Uh, but a lot of the episodes I'll do uh, by myself. I'll have some other interviews and co-hosts, hopefully. Uh, but now that we have things quote-unquote figured out, um, hopefully we can move forward and be a little more consistent in how we deliver some of the material that we have uh, and try to be a voice in the fight to save this great nation of ours. Uh, tonight... I want to dive back in to the events surrounding the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, uh, the shooting that spurred it, and all the mass hysteria and the fallout afterward. Hopefully we've learned something from it, but I'm not holding my breath. Let's start out by taking a look at some of the charges that Kyle Rittenhouse faced. Um, it's important to mention that the language of the law matters. And it varies from state to state. Um, not all the language is the same. Not all the charges are the same. Uh, we live in a day and age where TV is covered with crime dramas. You have all the CSIs and the NCISs. And so people, as soon as an incident like this occurs, uh, they start throwing out all these languages like first-degree murder, capital murder, uh, manslaughter. Manslaughter is one that I heard a lot after the Rittenhouse shootings. Interestingly enough, there is no manslaughter charge or statute in the Wisconsin statutes. Uh, that would fall under second-degree homicide. So keeping that in mind, um, I'm going to go through a list of the charges that Rittenhouse faced um, to prove that a layman can do this. I'm not an attorney or anybody fancy, but I can get online and use the information I have at the tip of my fingers and the click of a button. And if I want to take an objective look at this thing, I can get on the Wisconsin statutes, read the law for myself, examine the evidence for myself, and try to make an unbiased opinion on what happened and whether or not the verdict was correct. So the first charge that Kyle Rittenhouse faced was first-degree reckless homicide. That is Wisconsin Statute 940.02, and that was for killing Joseph Rosenbaum. Uh, that's a Class B felony. It carries a max sentence of 60 years. Uh, the evidence in this case must show utter disregard for human life. So that's the key phrase in this statute. Now, before I get into the rest of these, I also want to mention that um, the Class B, Class A felonies are on an alphabet scale. A being the most serious, and as you go down the ladder of the alphabet, they get less serious. 
So a Class B felony is, uh, I guess, the second most serious charge that he faced. Um, so that was what uh, the first-degree reckless homicide was considered. Uh, the second charge was uh, first-degree recklessly endangering safety. That was 941.30 in the Wisconsin statutes. Uh, that was because reporter Richard McKinnis, um, who took a lot of the video feed that you see in the video evidence, claimed that he was in the line of fire when Rittenhouse opened fire on Joseph Rosenbaum. Uh, that is a Class F felony. Uh, carries a fine of up to $25,000 and a maximum sentence of 12 and a half years in prison. Uh, similar to the previous charge, the evidence must show utter disregard for human life in order to be convicted of that crime. Uh, the third charge was first-degree intentional homicide. That's 940.01. That was for killing Anthony Huber. Uh, this is the most serious charge that Rittenhouse faced. That's a Class A felony that carries a mandatory life sentence. Now, evidence in this case must show intent to kill. Now, another thing that we need to make sure we understand here is that intent can be mitigated by other circumstances. Intent to kill on its face with no other examination is not enough to get a conviction. Uh, we have to look at what the intent was, why the intent was there. So the intent to kill can be mitigated by some circumstances that are spelled out in the statute, one of those being uh, that if the defendant was provoked by the victim and lost self-control, that can lessen the charge uh, from first-degree intentional homicide to something less. Um, also, um, likewise, if he believed that he was in danger um, and that force was necessary, but that belief is found to be unreasonable, that would lessen the charge. If, if he believed that he was preventing a felony and the belief that he was preventing a felony is found to be unreasonable, uh, he would still be found guilty, but of a lesser charge. Um, or, if case, of course, if he was coerced, um, that would lessen the charge as well. So just intent by itself is not enough. Uh, to get a conviction, and that anybody that can think logically and critically should understand uh, that the why matters, and that's kind of what we need to look at when we're examining Kyle Rittenhouse's intent in these cases. Uh, the fourth charge was attempted first-degree intentional homicide. Uh, that's 940.01, and then if you want to look up the part where it talks about attempted crimes, uh, that's 939.32, section 1A. Uh, he was charged with this for shooting Gage Grosskreutz and wounding him. I'll mispronounce that name and stutter over that. I'm not going to edit it out. I'm a human being. I hope everybody appreciates that. Um, anyway, the first-degree intentional homicide is a Class B felony. Uh, it carries a maximum sentence of 60 years. Uh, and then the fifth charge was first-degree recklessly endangering safety. Another charge of that, that was 941.30. We talked about that a little bit earlier. And that was for firing at an unidentified man that tried to jump through the air and kick him in the face. That man has since been identified as Maurice Freeland. We'll talk about him later, uh, but that's what that charge was for. And then the sixth charge was possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under the age of 18. That's Wisconsin Statute uh, 948.60. Uh, that is a Class A misdemeanor. Carries a fine of up to $10,000 and a maximum sentence of nine months in prison. Uh, that one I thought uh, could have and probably should have stuck. It got thrown out, um, but... That was the sixth charge he was faced with. So those are the charges. Um, pay attention to those numbers. You can get on Google, search uh, Wisconsin legal statutes, and they're all right there. If you type in Wisconsin legal statute uh, with those statute numbers, it'll take you right to the law. You can read it for yourself. Uh, some of the language is, of course, more explanatory there. Uh, but that's, that's what uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was charged with. 
So now that we understand the language, uh, the key language in the, in the law and what the evidence has to show, let's take a look at some of the evidence and the facts that were presented during the trial. Now, there is hours upon hours of footage. I did not watch the entire Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Um, I tried to watch and keep up with key pieces of it. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm going to talk about here, some of the main points of testimony, some of the video evidence. Uh, so let's get into that, starting with Joseph Rosenbaum, who was the first individual uh, that fell victim to Kyle Rittenhouse. And I shouldn't use the word victim. Everybody got upset because the judge refused to allow uh, the prosecution to refer to the people that Kyle Rittenhouse killed as victims. Um, you can have an opinion on that either way, but I understand the logic behind it uh, because that could influence a jury and put a preconceived notion in their mind uh, that Kyle Rittenhouse was the aggressor. The people that he killed were indeed victims. So if I refer to him as victims, I don't necessarily mean it that way. But Joseph Rosenbaum, in this case, uh, the first video piece of video evidence we find is from Richard McGinnis. Uh, he was a reporter uh, that was on the scene. Uh, he also live streamed a video earlier in the evening to his Facebook page. Uh, but this particular video I'm talking about now uh, is the one where they're standing in a parking lot. Now, uh, before we get into the details, I also want to mention that you can get on YouTube um, or just a Google search will turn up tons of these videos and some of the evidence that was used in the trial. Uh, you can watch them for yourself. I encourage you to slow them down. Uh, that's what I did to try to determine what actually happened. So I wanted to put myself in the shoes of the jury. If I'm in the jury box, what am I seeing? Um, we use instant replay and we slow video feed down for sporting events and things much less trivial than this to try to get an accurate interpretation of what happened. So it only makes sense if you get the time, if you're a nerd like me, Take some time and go watch the video, slow it down, play it in slow motion, pause it, and see some of the reactions and in the time order that these things happen, and it'll shed a little light on what might have been going through people's minds in the heat of the moment. But anyway, the first video of Joseph Rosenbaum, uh, he and Kyle Rittenhouse are in a parking lot with some other folks, and you can't really hear a whole lot of what's going on, but you see Joseph Rosenbaum throw a projectile at Kyle Rittenhouse. Now we later find out that that was a plastic bag. Not sure if anything was in it or not. Nonetheless, Joseph Rosenbaum kind of instigated the altercation threw a projectile at Kyle Rittenhouse and started to move toward him. And Rittenhouse takes off running across the parking lot. Joseph Rosenbaum give ch gives chase. Um, as they're running right before they disappear behind some cars, from view and that's the end of that video clip you can hear a gunshot from another protester somewhere else um, at about that time they disappear behind vehicles then you hear four shots which unfortunately was Kyle Rittenhouse opening fire on Joseph Rosenbaum now halfway through the trial interestingly enough a drone footage video surfaces that the defense attorneys accused the prosecution of withholding not going to get into whether or not that was the case, but it sure seems awful funny that nobody had a chance to review that before it was presented at the trial. Turns out it really didn't show anything different from the Richard McGinnis video as far as what could have helped the prosecution. Uh, it does show a brief view of what happened as they disappeared behind the cars. Um, what you see there is Rosenbaum is gaining on Rittenhouse. Uh, right before they disappear behind the cars, Rittenhouse kind of turns over his shoulder and looks, Rosenbaum's still gaining, and Rittenhouse open fi opens fire with Ritten or Rosenbaum still charging at him. So that was that little piece of video with the drone footage and all that stuff. Again, go check it out. You can slow it down and see kind of what happened. Now, witness testimony in regard to the Rosenbaum incident uh, started with Richard McGinnis. Uh, he was the first key piece that I remember uh, seeing when I was doing the research for all of this stuff. 
Um, he testified that Rosenbaum kept advancing when Rittenhouse turned around. That was confirmed by the video evidence. Um, he described Rosenbaum as lunging, uh, kind of with both arms out, as if grabbing at Rittenhouse's rifle. Um, he said Rittenhouse moved the rifle to dodge Rosenbaum and then opened fire. So that was uh, the testimony from Richard McGinnis. Uh, there was another gentleman that testified. His name was Jason Lakowski. He was a former United States Marine. Um, he said he met Rittenhouse that night, uh, the same night of the shooting, so he didn't know him prior. Uh, they had seen Rosenbaum earlier in the day, and he was acting very aggressive. Uh, Lakowski had told the FBI that Rosenbaum was one of the most aggressive people he encountered that night. Um, he said he was acting belligerently and kind of false stepping is what he referred to it as uh, toward other individuals in a provocative manner. Um, and he was asking to be shot, kind of taunting you know, saying, shoot me, explicatives. Um, you can see that video on YouTube as well if you want to look that up. Um, he did not view Rosenbaum as a threat at that time earlier in the evening. Um, he described Rosenbaum as a bumbling idiot. And then there was Ryan Baltz. Now, this guy's pretty interesting because he spent uh, most of the evening with Rittenhouse. Um, he was he testified that Rosenbaum at one point was right in front of his face, Baltz's face, uh, said he was, quote, yelling and screaming. Um, Baltz tried to get him calmed down, didn't really succeed. Um, he testified that Rosenbaum said, and this is, quote, if I catch any of you guys alone tonight, I'm going to explicative kill you. So this is pretty aggressive behavior from somebody that the media Later on, we'll see, he tried to paint as a poor victim. And then, of course, there's Rittenhouse's testimony. You know, the one that, you know, LeBron criticized and everybody made fun of. Yeah, he said Rosenbaum threatened to kill him twice. The first time was the incident that we previously talked about that Ryan Baltz testified to. Uh, the second time was in front of the car store when Rosenbaum shouted at a group of people. Again, I quote, I'm going to cut your explicative hearts out and kill all of you blank. And he used the N word there. Uh, Rittenhouse said he remembered Rosenbaum's hand on the barrel of his rifle right before he shot him. Um, he said he had no other space to run when he turned around. I think that's something that the defense attorney asked him, why didn't you run away? Well, genius, look at the video. He was running away. Um, he got, he was, R Rosenbaum was gaining on him. They got caught behind a bunch of cars. Rittenhouse said he didn't have anywhere else to run. Um, and then he also testified, and this is key because this was corroborated by another video that uh, Richard McGinnis had posted on his Facebook page, uh, did a Facebook Live, uh, where he asked Rittenhouse uh, where he was going after he shot Rosenbaum, and Rittenhouse said, I'm going to the police. So he, uh, Rittenhouse again testified that he was going to turn himself in to the police after the Rosenbaum incident. So that's kind of the, the one incident that spearheaded the whole thing. Um, and we'll talk about later, you know, Rosenbaum, what kind of individual he was. Um, but you kind of see the picture that was painted. He was the aggressor this entire time. Rittenhouse responded, you can disagree or agree with how he did it. Um, there's, another, there's other factors that we'll talk about later. But in a nutshell, Rosenbaum, quote unquote, if you're going back to the grade school terminology, started it. He was the aggressor. And unfortunately, it didn't work out too well for him. Now, from this point on, this is where things really get, get fast. And again, I encourage you to go back, look at the video for yourself, slow it down, and see if you can line it up with anything I'm saying, any of the other commentary you may or may not have heard. Uh, but the next interaction he has in regards to his charges uh, is when he moves north on Sheridan, Sheridan Road. Um, and for whatever reason, a mob, of course, there's people saying he shot somebody, he just shot somebody, and mob forms and starts to chase him. You know, it, it speeds up really fast. And as he's running, he falls to the ground. 
Um, and this is where he comes into contact with Maurice Freeland, who at the time, um, prior you know, everything leading up the year leading up to the trial had been unidentified. Uh, but video evidence shows that Rittenhouse, he starts to run north. Uh, he's ch getting chased by all these people. Now, one of the individuals catches up to him and knocks his hat off, and he falls to the ground. I, I couldn't tell initially watching the footage whether or not somebody actually knocked him down because there's so many bodies in the way. But it looks, after seeing a couple different angles and some different videos, it looks like he just fell. But as he falls, people start to converge on him. So he falls, and as he rolls onto his back, it looks like he moves his rifle to the ready position, but he doesn't immediately open fire. There's a little bit of space there. And then the video, particular video I watched out of the left-hand side of the frame, a man in a black hooded sweatshirt and light-colored jeans runs up to Rittenhouse uh, on his right side, and it looks like he kind of jumps and tries to kick or stomp at Rittenhouse's face. And as he's coming down, Rittenhouse pulls up and fires two shots at that man and misses. So he missed Maurice Freeland. And again, it, we go right from that incident into his interaction with Anthony Huber. So as Rittenhouse is trying to recover from the incident with Maurice Freeland, Anthony Huber charges in kind of from his front. So Rittenhouse is still on his back, and Anthony Huber's charging at his front. Uh, Huber actually lunges and stabs his skateboard down at Rittenhouse's head and actually makes contact with his head, uh, which Rittenhouse testified to later. Um, as Rittenhouse kind of rolled onto his right side after that, Huber actually grabbed Rittenhouse's rifle, uh, grabbed the barrel with his left hand, and pulled Rittenhouse back onto his back. And that's when Rittenhouse opened fire, just one shot, and he hits Huber in the chest. So Huber, uh, you can kind of see him get up, and he stumbles off, takes a few steps, and then collapses on the ground. Um, immediately, again, this is so fast, immediately after that, uh, Gage Grosskreutz is seen, and he approaches to Rittenhouse's left. He was actually less than 10 feet away, give or take, uh, when Anthony Huber was shot. So Rittenhouse raises to a sitting position, and about that same time, Gage Grosskreutz stands back up with his hands raised, and you can't really see it initially. You have to once you know it's there. I think you kind of pick it out. But he has a pistol in his hand, in his right hand. He's got his hands raised, and as he's doing that, you actually see if you slow the footage down, Rittenhouse appears to kind of lower his rifle. So again, that tells me he wasn't necessarily looking to shoot anybody, but the guy was legitimately afraid. You know, he's being chased by a mob of people. He's been knocked down. A guy tried to jump on him. Another guy tried to grab his rifle. He just shot him, and now you got another guy coming up. Gage Grosskreutz raises his hands. He has a pistol in his right hand, and if you slow the frame down, you can kind of see Rittenhouse start to lower his rifle. Inexplicably, Grosskreutz thought it would be a good idea to charge at Rittenhouse, and he aimed the pistol at him. Rittenhouse, again, not multiple shots, not trying to empty the mag. He fired one shot and hit Gage Grosskreutz in the right arm, um, kind of blew his bicep up. So that's a lot of video footage that you see from those guys, that whole chase, that whole incident. Uh, now let's take a look at some of the testimony that happened. Uh, when questioned by one of the defense attorneys, Gage Grosskreutz actually admitted that Rittenhouse didn't fire until Grosskreutz pointed his pistol at him. See, I told you that wouldn't be the last time I mispronounced that name or stumbled over it. If you get a chance, watch the, the video testimony of Gage Grosskreutz in court. And when he says that, pay attention to the court reporter's face. It's absolutely priceless. It, it's almost like she, as soon as he said what he said and admitted that he that Rittenhouse didn't shoot him until he pointed a pistol at him. The look on her face is, is almost like, what am I even doing here? That's how ridiculous some of this trial got. Uh, Rittenhouse testified 
the same thing, that he didn't shoot Grosskreutz until the pistol was pointed at him. Uh, Rittenhouse also said that there was another man in the street in front of him with his hands raised. Um, Rittenhouse didn't shoot him because he kept his hands up and was backing away. This can also be seen in the video. If you watch the video footage, as soon as Gage Grosskreutz is hit, Rittenhouse still has his rifle in a ready possession position. A few, be, few, a few feet, excuse me, a few feet behind Gage Grosskreutz is another gentleman. He's wearing a light-colored shirt. He puts his hands up and backs away. And oh, imagine that! Rittenhouse puts his rifle down. See how that works? It's not too hard to understand. So now we've looked at the charges. And I've painted a brief picture of the evidence. It's by no means comprehensive. Again, I can't say it enough. If you get a chance, watch the video and all that stuff for yourself. But we need to understand now that we have the charges and the evidence presented, we need to understand the scale of the burden of proof. Now, there's all kinds of terms, and I won't get into all of it and what they mean or how they're all applied, but there's articulable suspicion, there's probable cause, there's preponderance of evidence, there's clear and convincing evidence, and then there's beyond reasonable doubt. Now, the last three are the most common, I think, uh, that most people hear about. Um, probable cause is what you know police officers use if they're going to search a vehicle. Preponderance of evidence is what's applied in civil cases. So if somebody sues somebody in court, um, the burden of proof is a preponderance of evidence. So the plaintiff has to provide a preponderance of evidence that a wrongdoing occurred. The probability is anything over 50%. So all you have to do in civil court, usually, to prove that a wrongdoing occurred against you or happened against you, is provide a preponderance of evidence that provides a 50.1% probability that that wrongdoing occurred. Now, there's clear and convincing evidence, which is a 75%, and I'm not going to get into how that's applied. Uh, beyond reasonable doubt is equitable to about 95% probability that the person accused is guilty. So beyond reasonable doubt is what we're looking at in criminal cases, and that's what has to happen here. So you need to make a decision based on the evidence, based on everything that you know, uh, based on the charges and the legal language we talked about in the law. If there's a 95% probability that Kyle Rittenhouse really truly had utter disregard for human life and maliciously and malevolently intended to kill any of the people that he wound up killing. Now, there's another law that we need to take into consideration. It's Wisconsin self-defense law, which is 939.48, self-defense and defense of others. A few points on this law. A person can threaten or use force to prevent or terminate what he or she reasonably believes to be unlawful interference with his or her person. The force used can only reach what the person reasonably believes is necessary, and the force used cannot be intended to cause death or great bodily harm unless the person reasonably believes that it is necessary to prevent death or great bodily harm. So there is a self-defense statute in there, and that can certainly be applied in some of these cases. So let's go back and look at some of the instances with Joseph Rosenbaum. There's five facts that provide reasonable doubt of recklessness and utter disregard for human life. So that's the language that's going to be used to convict in this, in this particular case. Here's five facts that kind of blow that to pieces. First of all, Rosenbaum's threats to kill. He threatened to kill the guy. So that kind of takes away the utter disregard for human life. Rosenbaum threw a projectile at Rittenhouse. Again, it doesn't matter what it was. Rittenhouse didn't know what it was. The third fact is Rosenbaum was chasing Rittenhouse, proving that he was the aggressor. Uh, the fourth fact is that Rittenhouse actually tried to run away. He was fleeing. 
And then there was the random gunshot. We have to take that into consideration because even though that came from another protester, wasn't directly involved in this instance, it certainly had an effect on the people that were involved in that situation, especially Kyle Rittenhouse. If he's getting chased by a guy and hears a random gunshot, obviously that's going to heighten his adrenaline and make him more scared than he already is. So those five facts, um, I think, mitigate the utter disregard for human life. Take that out of the equation. So he can't be convicted on that front. Plus, I believe that those five facts also support the self-defense standard of a reasonable belief that he feared for his life. Now let's move on to the unidentified attacker, well, now identified as Maurice Freeland. Uh, There's two facts that provide reasonable doubt of recklessness and utter disregard for human life. First, Rittenhouse was in a defensive position on the ground when he was attacked, and the unidentified man initiated the attack, targeting Rittenhouse's head. So again, Rittenhouse is not the one that displayed utter disregard for human life. He was in a defensive position and and was attacked. So those two facts also support the self-defense standard. And then there's Anthony Huber. There's three facts that provide reasonable doubt of intent to kill. Again, that's the language in the charge uh, pertaining to the Anthony Huber incident. Once again, Rittenhouse was on the ground in a defensive position. Two, Huber once again initiated the attack, and he targeted Rittenhouse's head with his skateboard, actually made contact with his head. And then third, Huber grabbed the barrel of Rittenhouse's rifle, uh, preventing him from aiming to kill. So, again, it's hard to prove intent to kill, when he's the one that was trying to control the rifle. So the first two facts, Rittenhouse being in a defensive position and Huber initiating the attack also support the self-defense standard. And then there's Gage Grosskreutz. Now there's five facts that provide reasonable doubt of, again, intent to kill. So this was attempted intentional homicide. So the intent to kill is the language that matters here. Once again, in every single one of these cases, Rittenhouse is in a defensive position or running. Rittenhouse, first fact, Rittenhouse was on the ground in a defensive position again. Uh, Rittenhouse lowers his rifle. This is a second fact. He lowered his rifle when Grosskreutz had his hand raised. So if he intended to kill him, he could have popped him right there. Didn't do it. Third, Grosskreutz initiated the, the attack by charging at Rittenhouse, pointing the pistol at him. Pointing the pistol at him was actually the fourth fact. And then the fifth fact, Rittenhouse hitting Grosskreutz in the bicep, even though the shot was fired at point-blank range, indicates that the shot was a reflex action and there wasn't actually an intent to kill. And I think that's a lot of what Rittenhouse was doing, was just reacting. This happened so fast, the only way to get some of these nuanced details, again, is to slow the footage down and then you can see a little bit of it. So, again, the fact that Rittenhouse was on the ground in a defensive position, uh, the fact that Grosskreutz initiated the attack, and then the fact that he pointed a pistol at him also supports the self-defense standard. So all of these individuals that were killed or injured by Kyle Rittenhouse were the aggressors. Rittenhouse was never, not one time did he initiate an attack or act as an aggressor towards any of these individuals. But yet, for some reason, the woke mob, the mass media hysteria, the president of the United States all had him labeled and convicted and guilty before any of this information was examined in court. It's absolutely ridiculous. So today, if you still believe that Rittenhouse is guilty and he should face some kind of a punishment, you're either ignorant of the facts that we just talked about, you're choosing to ignore the facts that we just talked about, or you'd already labeled him as guilty and you just don't want to own your own bias and you're too proud to admit you might have been wrong. Now, interestingly enough, had Rosenbaum lived 
he would have been charged with at least attempted battery under Section 940.19 and 939.32 Section 1. Uh, Maurice Freeland, I believe, has been charged. Uh, I can't remember with what. I didn't actually look that up, surprisingly. Um, Anthony Huber, he was part of the chase when they started moving north to, on Sheridan Road. Um, he's seen swinging a skateboard, and I think he may have actually hit Rittenhouse with a skateboard. Um, he could have been charged with battery uh, for that act had he lived. Um, once Rittenhouse opened a fire on Freeland, things get a little bit fuzzy because at that point he could have been perceived as an active shooter. Um, it could be argued that Huber's second attack on Gage Grosskreutz's actions were a defense of a third person, which is permitted under statute 939.48 section three. So anytime something like this happens, the media instantly injects some kind of narrative, whatever they can to try to cause division because hype sells. Fighting and drama sells, conflict sells, and that's what they do. Now, I believe that there's probably more malicious intent behind it than that, but that's a conversation for another time. But the woke reaction in the media was just, it was absolutely insane. We need to remember that there are cases where maybe neither one of the people were wrong. Gage Grosskreutz may have, been, may have thought that he was stopping an active shooter. At the same time, Rittenhouse could have feared for his life. And both of those beliefs would be reasonable. So there's really no conviction or proven wrongdoing in court. But in the court of public opinion, things are different. Now, there was a local university, and I'm not going to tell you who it was. Um, it was just the stuff that they're doing with students and the safe spaces and all this stuff. I, I've got to read this. I considered whether or not to even include it but i'm going to just because it's it's just too much so this is a letter from the staff at a university as close to where i live again i'm not going to say who it was but this is the letter that they sent to their students the day the written house verdict was released that they that he was found not guilty it, it's it's crazy it says dear university community a few hours ago, news broke on the verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Rittenhouse is a teenager accused of killing two people and shooting another during unrest in Kenosha, Washington last summer. I recognize that this may be a triggering moment for many within our university community as our nation grapples with the impact the jury's decision will have on racial injustice and public safety in our country. Absolutely insanity. The Division of Diversity and Inclusion... <laughs> What is this? The Division of Diversity and Inclusion, in partnership with University Counseling and Psychological Services, will host a virtual space via Microsoft Teams for members of the university community to process the outcome of the trial. And then there's a link to register. Sometimes, sometimes I have to sit back and wonder, am I being punked? Is this real life? Are people really this soft? This is the coddled generation that we've raised where students can't even wrap their minds around and deal with a news item that didn't happen to go the way their preconceived brainwashed bias led them to believe. So they need a counseling session or something like that. We got colleges starting divisions of diversity and inclusion. Get out of here. It's just so absurd. 
I can't get over it. No matter how many times I read that, I can't make it make sense. So that's just the tip of the iceberg. The woke mob went completely ballistic over this. The irony being that all of the people involved here, except for Maurice Freeland, were white. Race had absolutely nothing to do with it. But we'll see that facts don't matter to some of these lunatics. But part of the problem and the reason we saw such a backlash is whether or not we want to admit it, we are in a cold civil war. It doesn't take hardly any time for those to turn hot. Now, I'm surprised it hasn't already. Um, and anytime you're in a, in a war like we're in, facts don't matter. You already have a side picked. That's all there is to it. So in the media's eyes and in the woke mob's eyes, you have a white guy with a scary assault rifle. Um, that was enough to identify him as an enemy in the war. They didn't need anything else. And that's the only way they can create a race narrative. That's why the president of the United States, of all people, is calling this guy a white supremacist. Uh, you got people saying that the verdict is, is, is an example of racial injustice. And, and that's the narrative. Anytime you have a white man that's found innocent in a high-impact news story now, that's that's going to be the narrative. Oh, it's racial injustice. And we'll talk about how they spin that here shortly. What we don't understand is what's going on is Marxism 101. It's class warfare. It's a separation of classes into oppressor and oppressed. And that's the lens that they want you to look every look at everything through. Nothing could be farther from the truth. That's not what we're doing in this country. It hasn't been for years. We need a diplomatic dialogue to end this. We need to stop this war with civil discourse. But the media prevents it. The elites prevent it. Big tech censorship prevents it. And that's why we see and hear the kind of stuff that we saw and heard. An example, everybody's favorite whack job over at MSNBC, Joy Reid. <laughs> She said the system, quote unquote, and that's another phrase that I'm sick and tired of hearing is the system. The system was doing what it was designed to do, which was give white men the right to inflict violence in the name of protecting, protecting property. So here she used two weapons in the war, violence and white men, alluding, I'm, I'm sure she was alluding to gun laws in there. So what's the problem, Joy? Is it we can actually protect property and self with violence? Or is it just the fact that a white guy did it? Of course we need to be able to pr protect ourselves. And if somebody's threatening or inflicting violence against us, you better believe that we should be able to act in turn. I don't know what the thought process is, or if there even is one. And then there was Rage Against the Machine, popular band. These guys sent out a social media post. This is creative. I got to give them credit for, for making the stretch here. But they said the claim of self-defense was the settler, quote, the settler logic of America's founding myth that whiteness must cast itself as the victim to justify its violence against those resisting its oppression. Oh, please, cry me a river. If this isn't the most blaring example of gaslighting, I don't know what is. The woke left is the one that's in the business of casting themselves as victims. It's unbelievable. The best thing about that whole phrase that they posted was they used the word myth because that's what they're saying is. What they're saying is absolutely a myth. That is not the founding principle or a founding principle of this country. The bottom line is that Rittenhouse refused to be a victim. 
And then there's the since disgraced Chris Cuomo. He had a conversation with Mark Richards, and he plainly stated in his in this conversation that his problem was with the laws. And he asked Richards if he was concerned with how low of a bar the law presents. Specifically, that there's no duty to retreat and that the prosecution has to prove self-defense wasn't necessary beyond a reasonable doubt. Why would that bother anybody? Cuomo must have forgotten the legal doctrine of presumption of innocence. Yes, you have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. You are innocent until proven guilty. This is a fundamental pillar of the justice system. It dates back to the Roman Empire. It's been a major part of every legal system almost in the world for the last 2,000 years. The prosecutorial bar is supposed to be high. That's what the phrase beyond reasonable doubt means. He needs to remember that the burden of proof is on the accuser. Now, those sands shift from side to side once evidence begins to be presented. But if somebody's accused of a crime, it's up to the prosecution to prove again, beyond a reasonable doubt, that they were guilty. He mentioned the concept of duty to retreat. That is absolutely asinine. If a person attacks you, by law, they've committed a crime. If they succeed, they've committed the crime. If they don't, they attempted to commit a crime, which is also a crime. A duty to retreat not only protects the assailant, but it rewards him. It rewards the assailant and shifts responsibility for the crime onto the person that's being attacked. It, it's nuts. It doesn't make any sense. Anybody with an IQ higher than a turnip should understand that if you don't agree with this, you really need to examine what you believe and put yourself in the victim's position, which I believe in this case was Rittenhouse. Cuomo also is the same guy that earlier on CNN asked a rhetorical question and said, show me where protesters are supposed to be polite and peaceful. He also said that, quote, citizens have no duty to check their outrage. Oh, I guess unless you're white and armed, then you need to check your outrage. And furthermore, let people exercise their outrage against you. What a bunch of clowns. And then there's Samaria Rice, this poor woman. If you remember her son, Tamir Rice, uh, he was shot. I think he was about 12 years old. was shot and killed by police officers uh, because he was brandishing a toy pistol in a park. Now, we can get into that's a whole other case. I'm not going to dive into that. Whether or not there should have been charges um, doesn't matter. But I will say that the reporter that reached out to her after this instance to prompt and race bait and get more fodder to throw out and get people to, to jump into the fray on is a pretty sick individual. But nevertheless, she participated, and she made the statement, at the end of the day, this country needs to be overthrown. Keep that in mind when you're thinking about all the January 6th narrative. These are the conclusions, though, that we come to when everything is viewed only through the lens of race. Comparing Rittenhouse to her son is not, by any stretch of the imagination, an apples-to-apples comparison. It just isn't. If charges should have been brought against the cops who killed Tamir Rice, the remedy to that is not just punishing every white person that's accused of a crime. Furthermore, she may want to take a look at United States Code 18, Chapter 115, Treason, Sedition, and Subversive Activities, Section 2385, Advocating Overthrow of the Government. 
the government doesn't need to be overthrown. If there's a problem, that's not the solution. So you got all the woke reaction, and then there's the mass narrative that's spread in news articles and talk shows and through all these commentators. There's the vigilante narrative, accusing Kyle Rittenhouse of being a vigilante. So if we want to look at the dictionary definition of vigilante, it's a member of a self-appointed group of citizens who undertake law enforcement in their community without legal authority, typically because the legal agencies are thought to be inadequate, which <laughs> in Kenosha, Wisconsin, they were pretty inadequate, and I won't get into that. But the same people that are spinning the vigilante narrative, they're all against vigilantes and people taking justice into their own hands, are the same jokers that want to defund the police. Who's going to uphold the law and what do you think is going to happen if there's no police force or the police force becomes more inadequate? You're going to have people that, according to your definition, would fall under vigilantes. Now, notice this is only used when their side in the war, quote unquote, loses. See, Kyle Rittenhouse is found guilt, un, not guilty and all of a sudden he's a vigilante. Well, what about the mob that was chasing him? What about the people that were trying to disarm him? What about the people that attacked him? Were they vigilantes? I'd say they make that definition more clear than Kyle Rittenhouse did. Now, laws vary, again, state to state. They're not the same. But most states allow for a certain form of vigilanteism uh, through citizen's arrest, uh, defensive property, self-defense, you know, that kind of stuff. But when law enforcement is either unable to or blatantly refuses to prevent riots, the destruction of property. What's the expectation? Is it really that we all stand by and just let the cities burn? If you're a private business owner, you say, oh, oh well, I'd rather watch my whole livelihood and life savings go up in smoke rather than stick my neck out and defend myself and my property or my neighbor's property. But that's what the left wants. When they say no justice, no peace, they don't understand justice and the last thing they want is peace. The irony is that at no time did Rittenhouse use his weapon to take the law into his own hands. The only time he used his weapon was to defend himself. Well, then there's the narrative that imagine if Rittenhouse would have been black. Insinuating that if he would have been black, he would have convicted, locked up in the key thrown away. Well, let's take a look at the narrative that let's assume he was black. Well, first of all, the media never would have reported it. <laughs> they never accuse a young black man who engaged in the same thing of any kind of wrongdoing. And we don't need to look very far for an example because a few weeks after the Rittenhouse incident, there was Mr. Brooks at another town in Wisconsin that drove an SUV into a crowd of people, allegedly. He's pleaded not guilty somehow. And he killed a few of them. There was one news headline, I can't remember if it was Washington Post or another outlet, but the headline actually read, that the accident was caused by an SUV. They would not even mention that it was a man, much less a black man. If it was reported, if Rittenhouse would have been black, he'd have been immediately justified as a victim of evil attacks by white men. Because again, Huber, white, Grosskreutz, white, Rosenbaum, white. If he were attacked by other black men, it wouldn't have been reported at all. The most recent data I could find directly from the FBI's website uh, was from 2016. 
In 2016, there were 2,870 black homicide victims. 2,570 times the killer was also black. So of the 2,870 black homicide victims, 89.5% of the time, the perpetrator in those crimes was also black. But we don't hear about that from the mainstream media. We also, then there's the well-known, we don't hear about very much, the daily black-on-black violence in big cities like Chicago, Detroit. We are being manipulated. There's no other way to describe the way the media covers this stuff. So don't give me this nonsense about, oh, imagine if Rittenhouse would have been black. At the end of the day, we need to decide if we are really a nation of laws. You hear that phrase tossed out a lot. That's what politicians like to say. They like to say, well, nobody's above the law, except they are. Hillary Clinton's not in prison because she's clearly above the law. This we're a nation of laws was the narrative after January 6th on both sides. And at the time, I agreed with that. I I think that's the right way to approach that. Um, I'm not going to talk a lot about the January 6th incident. That might be a podcast episode for another time. But I do think that was a very, very unfortunate and a sad day um, in American history. But that was the phrase that we're a nation of laws, except the law is not applied equally. Politicians aren't held to an equal standard. Protesters in this instance sometimes aren't held to an equal standard. In the rare occasion that we do feel like the law is applied equally, then we have a problem with the law and we start demanding change for it. Example, Rittenhouse is found not guilty. Oh, there must be something wrong with the system or the law. If that's how this works, then why do we have laws in the first place? Because eventually, if this goes unchecked, it's going to turn into a less violent form of mob rule, mobocracy. This is why at least some principles of the law have to be standards that are unmovable. There are certain laws that need change. We can all go back and look at the original language in the Constitution where it talks about black folks being equal to, I think it was one-fifth of a person. Obviously, that needed to be corrected, and it has been. So there's some pieces of the law that need to be changed. Societies change, societies grow. But that doesn't mean the whole thing needs to be up for grabs. There has to be a standard or a certain set of standards that all these movable parts are anchored to. Again, conversation for another time. I am of the opinion, and I've developed the opinion, that there's no such thing as a social justice system. This whole narrative over the last few years has gotten so far out of touch with reality that I'm just tired of hearing. If you want to disengage me from a conversation, bring up the term social justice, I shut down. There is no such thing as a social justice system. We have a justice system in this country because we're social creatures. The laws and the system of justice we have in this country are designed, whether they're adequate or need improvement or not, they're designed to govern our social behavior with each other. Our justice system is a social justice system. What they're doing is hijacking the phrase social justice anytime the real justice system doesn't provide the emotional outcome that they want. The difference between the real justice system and today's modern woke definition of social justice, the new social justice system is based completely on emotion over evidence, and therefore it cannot be any kind of real justice. 
Social justice is just a flowery term that's used to mask attempts to circumvent the real justice system and satisfy this bloodlust for vengeance that the woke mob has every time somebody sneezes cross-eyed at somebody that's a different race. So, rather than call them social justice warriors, I'll start calling them social feelings warriors. They're like children that throw tantrums, except there's no adults around that have the intestinal fortitude to correct them. But there's plenty that are willing to support and enable them. If there are problems or injustices that need to be addressed, what are the remedies? The only solutions that I've seen from the woke involve demonizing and punishing whites. They don't address any real problems. Their reactions, riots, those have never resulted in any real change or productive progression in society, and they never will. And it's certainly not going to get them their way. It's only going to make things worse. But they continue to do it. Short-sighted, not far-sighted. Now, we do probably need to examine police training. That doesn't mean every wrongdoing committed by a police officer is racially motivated. Probably the most accurate and articulate conversation that I heard regarding police training and how it pertains to some of the stuff going on today was actually on the Joe Rogan experience. Uh, Jocko Willink was on there. Of course, Jocko Willink's a former Navy SEAL. And he was talking about how anytime they went into a deployment uh, for the SEAL teams, they would train for a year to 18 months for one mission, for one deployment. Well, what you have in the United States is oftentimes in some of these bigger cities and rougher neighborhoods, these police officers are put into an environment that can quickly turn into a very similar situation to a combat situation. It can elicit the same psychological emotions, the same stress levels, the same adrenaline push. And these officers are probably undertrained. They go to a six-week, nine-week, you know, 13-week, however long it is, police academy. And then they only have minor periodic trainings, as far as I understand, throughout the years. So how prepared are they really to deal with something when it gets out of hand and turns into a combat zone? It's not unreasonable to believe that that might be more of a cause to their lashing out and acting using excessive force more so than, oh, they're just doing it because this guy's black. Now, I won't get into all the statistics on you know black crime. Again, another conversation for another time. But these kind of solutions, again, require honest and civil dialogue. But the woke doesn't want that. Because if you have honest and civil dialogue and you start examining some of the nuances to these issues, all it does is reveal that anything they say has no basis in reality. It's all based, again, on feelings. And they have no interest in objectivity. Everything has to be based on feelings and emotion. Now, another problem is that there are people involved in some of the dialogue that we do have that are supposed to be educated. They're supposed to understand and represent the law. They're supposed to accurately communicate its principles and stand up for the principles of the justice system. But instead, they pick sides in the war and they turn themselves into activists. And when that happens, folks, we got a serious problem. We've been conditioned to rely on experts for most of our information. And these guys get on mainstream media outlets and a lot of people just take what they say as gospel. Now, here's an example. 
I printed off this article, I think it was from insider.com. Uh, it was talking about a guy named David Henderson uh, who made a guest appearance on, I believe it was Meet the Press on MSNBC. And I'm not going to read the whole article. I just want to take a couple of excerpts from it and discuss some of his comments. Uh, but here's a guy, again, that should be using his knowledge to provide a voice of reason in this and go back and do what we did at the beginning of this episode. Take a look at some of the legal language. Take a look at the evidence and base your judgments on that. Instead, again, he chose activism over law in some of his comments. He said, quote, this was a winnable trial. <laughs> no, I don't think it was. He said, with a different jury, you would have had a different outcome. Now, wait a minute. The jury is supposed to be selected to be impartial. They go through a vetting process to even be able to act as a juror because it's not supposed to matter who the jury is. The outcome of a trial is supposed to be determined by the evidence. The jury is supposed to weigh that evidence. So a different jury should not have made a difference. So, Mr. Henderson, I beg to differ. You're wrong. And, of course, he says the law is not the problem so much as the, quote, the system is the problem. And that's why we talk about systemic injustice. Wah, 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 wah. The system is the problem with the way this case was handled. Well, wait a minute. Isn't the law the system in a trial? You're an attorney. Do you really have a problem with the law? It wouldn't surprise me. Another quote, he said, there's an inherent conflict when you have stand-your-ground laws in an open-carry state where you've got political division. Well, the only conflict is if somebody starts an altercation. The fact that you have a stand-your-ground law in open-carry states is not the problem. The only time there's a problem is if you got some knucklehead that's stupid enough to start an altercation and attack you in a state with those kind of laws. The article says that Henderson made an analogy to Rittenhouse's defense using fists instead of guns, saying if he was threatened by someone running towards him and responded by punching him once in the face and then beating him to death. What other choice did I have? Henderson asked while making the analogy. That's basically what the Rittenhouse defense was. At the end of the day, you just have someone who is running at you aggressively, 5'3", never physically touches you, never physically touches your gun. Well, he conveniently ignores all the other facts that led up to Rosenbaum's shooting, all the threats and the belligerent behavior and the combative attitude and the fact that Rosenbaum actually initially started the altercation. And he's completely wrong. Rosenbaum did touch the gun. Anthony Huber did touch the gun. These guys were acting as an aggressor towards Kyle Rittenhouse. Finally, Henderson went on to suggest that Rittenhouse could have, quote, backed down from the confrontation. The law of self-defense and stand your ground in Wisconsin actually allows the jury to consider when you're assessing whether what Rittenhouse did was reasonable. The law the jury was given allows you to consider whether or not he should have backed down, Henderson said. Hey, Dave, he ran away. How much more backing down did he need to do? He backed down to the point where he fell on the ground and couldn't back down anymore, and people still kept coming at him. So when you have attorneys that are getting on and providing activist commentary like that when they're supposed to be defending the law and providing an insight into how the law works, it's no wonder our opinions are skewed and everything's a mess. So in closing, we need to return to living our lives 
from a standpoint of individual responsibility. Now that term, that's something the left runs from like a vampire runs from the sun. But we can't have individual freedom. We can't have the liberties and the things that we enjoy in this country without individual responsibility. Actions should have consequences. Now, that's turned into a gray area, too. This is another area of leftist hypocrisy. They want your First Amendment right to free speech to have consequences, even though it's protected by the Constitution, so that it doesn't have consequences. But attacking an armed man without being provoked, which is actually a crime, should have no consequences. That's the insinuation that this insane woke narrative about the Kyle Rittenhouse incident portrays. So from a standpoint of individual responsibility, let's rewind some of the events that led up to the Kenosha shooting. We'll start from the most recent backwards. What if Gage Grosskreutz had kept his hand raised, hands raised and backed away like the man behind him did? Would he have still been shot? What if Anthony Huber had not tried to stab Rittenhouse's head and just stopped chasing him instead of trying to disarm him? What if Maurice Freeland hadn't tried to stomp Rittenhouse's head into the ground? What if the mob had let Rittenhouse walk north on Sheridan Road to turn himself in instead of chasing him? Again, where are the vigilante outcries for the mob that was trying to chase Rittenhouse? I haven't heard any. What if Rosenbaum had not attacked Rittenhouse? What if Rosenbaum had not made threats? What if Rosenbaum had stayed home given his mental condition? It came out in the trial, and I, you know, of course I was able to research and do some other digging on this guy. We'll talk about his background and some of the other guys' backgrounds in a minute. He was not in a good state. What if he would have just stayed home? What if Kyle Rittenhouse would have just stayed home? What if the mob would have just kept the peaceful protests during the day instead of turning to rioting at night? What if the police officer that shot Jacob Blake had only fired twice or not fired at all? What if, because that's what these protests were all about. What if Jacob Blake had simply obeyed the officers rather than reaching for a knife? He'd already been tased. What if Jacob Blake had complied with his court order to prevent the warrant that caused the police to detain him? What if Jacob Blake had not broken the law in the first place? All these instances were events in the months prior to the Kenosha protests. All these were events that led up to the Kyle Rittenhouse situation. And all these events were determined by individual choices. Individual responsibility, folks. We got to get back to it. In this case, there are no heroes. Despite what both sides of the media are telling you, it's just not the case. Let's take a look at Kyle Rittenhouse. I'm a conservative. I think it's absolutely ridiculous the way that some conservative media talking heads have fawned over this guy. He should not be a celebrity. The reality of the situation for Kyle Rittenhouse was that in today's culture, no minor is equipped to take on the responsibility of providing the kind of aid that he said he was trying to provide while carrying a firearm during a riot. He had no business in that situation. The dangerous weapons charge was dismissed. 
on a technicality surrounding the length of the barrel of his rifle. That's an example of a law that probably needs to be re-examined because I think we could all agree that that is definitely a dangerous weapon. He was a kid. He was in way over his head. Uh, he made an irresponsible decision. Not illegal, but very irresponsible. You got people telling him, you know, calling him a patriot and all this other kinds of stuff. Nah, I don't see it. I don't see it. He was not defending his country. He may have been trying to trying to protect private property, but I know some fine patriots, and I don't think he meets that definition. And then you had congressmen. I think Matt Gates from Florida was one of them. That were I don't know if this was rhetorical, if they were serious, if they were just doing it for media attention, that were actually trying to offer him staff positions and internships. They're not in touch with reality. I'm glad the kid was acquitted. I don't think he was guilty of the crimes he was charged with. I don't believe he should have been charged given the evidence that was presented in the language of the law. That does not mean he's a hero. That does not mean he's somebody we need to be fawning over. On the flip side of that, you actually had knuckleheads on the left that were saying that Rittenhouse's attackers were heroes. Hey, my take on these guys, and this is going to sound harsh, but we need, we need, again, actions have consequences. You play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. There was actually somebody, I can't remember where I read this, that said that Rosenbaum and Huber died defending black lives. They weren't defending anybody. They were attacking. These guys are the bottom feeders, the dredges of society. Joseph Rosenbaum was a convicted pedophile and domestic abuser. He spent time in prison for raping young boys between 9 and 11 years old. While he was in prison, he was found guilty of 40 disciplinary infractions, which included disobedience to disobeying orders, assaulting the staff, tampering with security, and arson. And then he had severe mental health issues. In no way, shape, or form could we ever paint this guy as a hero and say he was defending anything. Anthony Huber. This is another guy that was a domestic abuser. He was convicted of strangulation and suffocation and false imprisonment. All prior to his activism in these protests. And then there's Gage Grosskreutz. His criminal history dates back over 10 years to when he was still a minor. He was convicted of carrying a firearm while intoxicated. He's been charged with breaking into his ex-girlfriend's window, uh, felony burglary, uh, and hitting his grandmother in the face. Stand-up guy. Just days before all this went down, he was arrested for prowling around a police parking lot just before the riots. Then there's Maurice Freeland. This is another guy. It's a history of disorderly conduct. Um, he's been charged with battery and criminal damaging. Uh, he's been convicted on multiple drug charges and felony escape. Um, he has pending domestic abuse case uh, for assaulting his significant other by kicking her and throwing her down to the floor. You see, all these guys are tough guys when it comes to women. These are not the type of people that we should be painting as heroes. They're not the type of people we should be naming streets after, painting murals for, building statues of. It's a dark day in this country when we're removing statues and monuments of our heroes and our founding fathers and we're replacing them with jokers like this. In the end, justice 
and the law have to be the measuring stick. I finished reading Trey Gowdy's book, Doesn't Hurt to Ask. I recommend everybody read that. He gives a pretty nice description. I'm going to paraphrase it. I can't quote exactly what he said, but he gives a nice description of the justice system as it relates to the Lady of Justice statue. Most of you are familiar with that statue. Uh, it's a lady standing with a set of scales in one hand, a sword in the other, and a blindfold on. And that's a picture of how the justice system has to operate in this country. The blindfold is there to signify that we cannot make judgments based on emotion and feelings and what we see. We're blindfolded and we can only weigh the evidence as it's presented. The evidence determines guilt and innocence. And if the sword of justice has to be swung, it has to be based on that evidence and not what we see and feel. So when you're considering what went down in the Kyle Rittenhouse instance, think about that. At the end of the day, I hope Rittenhouse takes the media and all these clowns to the cleaners for all the slander he had to endure. That's it for episode two. Hope you enjoy it. We'll look forward to getting the next one out here, hopefully in the next month or two. In the meantime, take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. God bless.